Say hello and welcome to the Navigate podcast. I'm Jules Saunders and I'll be your host today. Today I'll be talking to Chris Shirley. Chris is an independent security consultant and joins us from the UK. Hi Chris and thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Hi Julie, no problems. It's lovely to be talking to you from uh, here in in not so sunny London. (laughs) (laughs) For our listeners, Chris, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your professional background? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think kind of my my security safety risk management background started with joining the military as a as a young twenty something uh, back in two thousand and four. I spent twelve years all all in total as a military policeman and as a Royal Marines commando officer, uh, and then left to work with the BBC uh, and and charities, NGOs in hostile environments. And so with your background, Chris, and your broad travel experience, and then one of the reasons we're talking with you today is about a trip that you were on where unfortunately things didn't go to plan. Can you tell us a little bit about this trip and and what you were doing? Yeah, sure. So I was climbing the Matterhorn Mountain from the Italian side, which is the the, the mountain that the Toblerone chocolate bar is, is shaped upon, and the big pointy looking one that you see in, in photos quite often. We, we tried to climb the Matterhorn for three successive years and always got weathered off or or just the, the, the route was too busy at the time. So we couldn't kind of fit in very well. So this was the, the third year which we were attempting it. And uh, I had quite, quite a, a big tumble, approximately 50 meters, so I'm told, um, and woke up in hospital with a, with a shattered leg, uh, broken rib and a traumatic brain injury having seen the the helmets that absolutely saved my life it's now in in two or three pieces (laughs) wow okay (laughs) gosh so taking a step back um chris before we do um go go into that part of your story so can you take us through maybe some of your planning and your preparation um, for the trip so so obviously it is a significant climb that you talked about you know so i I imagine that planning and preparation stage is quite significant so we've been we were we were in the same rope teams that we've been uh, using for the, the last few years, so we were, we were pretty well prepared beforehand. But this time we were we decided to go travel a little bit lighter, so carrying less equipment to base camp um, and to do more time at, at altitude to acclimatise faster. So this year we, we, we were better prepared than ever. Um, we'd we'd joined, luckily joined the mountain during a, a, a weather window where that the was unexpected. So people, the, the mountain wasn't very crowded um, and we were able to, to more or less kind of get to the Corral Hut um, quite free. But unfortunately that was the next morning, the weather window closed. And so we had to descend in uh, really gusty, icy conditions, uh, make it even more precarious. But that we got down from that fine. Uh, and then not wanting to fly back to the UK, we, we hung around for another day and, and just did some traditional climbing and I had my camera with me and so decided that I'd go and take photos of the, the teams that had been climbing and just get something for, for their social media and something which um you know we could use for use for, for, for the future to, to inspire us for next year. Um but like I said, I, I had a, a, a mistimed step, I tumbled for fifty meters. Um, completely right. r- wrote off the camera, so the camera was entirely destroyed. And um, woke up and you know had to get aeromedded to hospital some thirty miles away uh, over in Aosta. Um, and right. yeah, it, 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 quite quite a long experience, which led straight into the pandemic. So the uh, you could argue <laughs> the recovery's taken you know many many more months um, because there was no access to physio, there's no access to uh, to see the surgeon mm-hmm. and the, the medical team. Um, on a regular basis. So, um, yeah, it's been somewhat drawn out by that. 
Yeah, okay. And, and so, Chris, bef before you climb a significant mountain um, like that, did, ha had you thought through your contingency plan should things um, uh, go wrong? Do you know, did, did you have what it would look like on paper? Um, you, you know, this wasn't the first time that you'd climbed the mountain. Y yeah, did you have that contingency plan in place? So, I'd actually trained the other climbers with me. I'd, I'd trained them in um, emergency first aid. So, having, having done uh, quite a lot of emergency first aid over the last few years, um, my first making sure that you know we we were adequately prepared for this i wanted to train them all uh in emergency first aid or upstate techniques which i knew they they would would hopefully pay off um if anything happened which it did happen and it did pay off because they were uh they did you know come to my aid when i was uh when i was uh unconscious after the fall in terms of contingency we we all had insurance thankfully and that's something yep. that's i think especially in with, with the current pandemic something that's even more uh, needed now because the situation is really a lot more dynamic than what it was prior to the pandemic. Uh, we all had safety equipment. We all had, we all knew the routes. We, we were very well rehearsed in what we were going there to do. And we all knew, knew the risks for something to happen at the end of an expedition is, is, is quite rare, but I'm looking back at now after some 19 months after the accident, I'm, I'm starting to see human factors, which I think led up to, the you know to to the fall which almost you know pre-incident indicators which you could use to um to predict something happening like this. So you had a, a team around you that, uh, as you say, you, you were trained and, and knew the drill if something um it did happen, and so they then helped you get down from that mountain, or there was a rescue service that came to you to then take you to the to a to a hospital. Yeah, so I, I was unconscious. I was bleeding. I was I was having laboured breathing. So I yeah. wasn't I wasn't there too. I was I'm a, I'm a hundred kilos uh, chap <laughs> climber. So yeah, um, you know I was I was then a hundred kilo dead weight for for three people to then start manhandling. Uh, which thankfully they didn't, you know, because I'd, I'd I'd work with them to make sure they kept me in position. Um, the Matterhorn's got excellent four G signal. Um, we okay. we had a satellite communicator with us for the. The, the peak where the, the signal kind of drops off over 4,000 meters, but we were in range of, of 4G signal. So we were able to call, the friends were able to call the uh, mountain guide hut, um, who then arranged a, an aeromed evacuation for me back to, to the nearest hospital, which has got some excellent doctors in and see climbers regularly flown at short notice to their hospital um who fall in the in the alps in you know in the matter on the matterhorn um and other places so they were they were pretty they were pretty swept up with everything they needed to do to me they stabilized me kept me kept me alive put me put me on ventilation um and did everything to to get me through to the next phase, which is re repatriation back to the UK. Yeah, so it, it certainly sounds like you. So you had a swift rescue off the mountain, um, and then obviously a, a quick transfer to um, to a tier one hospital, um, which is vital in those situations. I know the work I'm involved in, getting that assistance quickly is important, but getting the right service the first time makes makes all the difference um, to patient outcomes. So it certainly sounds like it uh, it, it may have saved your life in this instance. Yes, yeah. I've done some previous mountaineering in Kyrgyzstan, which was a lot more remote. So, you know, for this thing to happen so near to, you know, to the, the, the helicopter was with us, I think, within 15 minutes of the phone call. So it was it was really, you know, I think as far as it, as far as the golden hour goes, I think I was pretty much in hospital on ventilation, you know, with I think transfusions at the ready with it well within an hour. So 
hugely lucky um, in that situation. However, like I said, a, a mountaineering expedition in Kyrgyzstan I did the same year um, would have been many, many more hours uh, vehicle transit to a, 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 an aeroled evacuation site. Um, so yeah, so yeah. I count my lucky stars that we uh, count my lucky stars, but also obviously we 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 took the risk on knowing that there was robust um, evacuation procedure in place as well. Wait, were you surprised by the complexity of what else is actually involved? You know, once your plan does have to stand up, I know you may not have um, re- realised it at the time with such significant um, injuries, but uh, you know, it, it's. It sounds like you've done some drills, though, to to help the team know what the situation is. But when something obviously significant happens, sometimes logistics or weather or other things can come into into um into play. So, uh, yeah, were you surprised by the complexity of uh, of what was actually involved to to not only get you off 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 the mountain, but into a hospital uh, um and then start your your recovery? Yeah, the the repatriation back to the UK actually was. Uh, a bit more complex than I than I realised. I mean, I, I was I had a traumatic brain injury at the time, so uh, I was I thought I was in Afghanistan and I didn't really recognise the people around me um, and would come up with, with random random sayings from time to time. But yeah. thankfully, my my girl, girlfriend works in um, like global assistance, so thankfully she was able to manage it. She spoke the language that you know that the company the repatriation companies understood and and could translate to. Um, you know, for what that meant to my family and, and for my personal situation. So I think without without her, I would have been a, in a much more difficult place because we're looking at I think twenty five thousand pounds for repatriation from you know, from Italy, yeah. which was was I think it was maybe two hour helicopter ride, uh, sorry, plane ride in a small Cessna back to Gatwick Airport, and then. Uh, a transit you know in a private ambulance to the hospital so I think when you add on the distance and more complexity to that actually it's you're you're talking quite a few people as a support team to get you just back to your home country so um, I'm now I'm now much more I'm, I'm much more aware of that now and I think I consider it not more than the 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 point of wounding wounding but just having a um confirmed clear route back to the you know to your to your home country to your home soil is something now I'd be looking at for you know for any remote trip I mean even in the in the post-covid landscape um when borders of borders can close within hours um spontaneous public disorder can as we've seen happen you know in in tourist areas so I think I think now I'd take a much more strategic view of of being able to get back to, you know, back home, safe and sound. Yeah, it certainly takes uh, often a, a team of people with those varying logistics and medical expertise, isn't it, to um to 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 plan and and navigate, like you say, things like COVID and border closures and that sort of thing to get people home quickly where where it's needed. So, um, so you were first taken to a hospital um in Italy. Did did you stay there for a period of time before being repatriated back? Back to London. Yeah, so that that was about ten, ten or eleven days in in Aosta, um, in in Italy. So they obviously they were, they were most concerned about the brain injuries. So there was I had three legions on my brain, and um, that's bleeds bleeds in the um, on the brain, uh, a, sh- a shattered leg as well, which they they operated on to stabilise before um, you know I was able to be repatriated back to the UK, um, and that was was just a, a very quick. Um, 
operation just to put a, a steel bar, a, a metal bar inside of the, the tibia and the shin bone because it was it was so badly shattered. Um, and then and then more or less, you know, as soon, as soon as I was able to breathe on my own and able to talk and, and converse with people, then we was, then we, were, we were looking at repatriation. But in the, in the meantime, uh, my, my, my girlfriend and friends flew out to, to be you know, by my bedside because one thing we, we weren't aware of was um, in Italian hospital, for example, um, you provide your own nurses. So your insurance will pay out for for. Um, nurses to be you know to, to 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 support you whereas obviously the main difference in the uk is is that it's you know that's part of the part of the nhs so peculiarities like that i wasn't really aware of until i had to go through it yes that's exactly right uh, yeah the, the levels of nursing care vary um great greatly around the world uh, did, did your assistance company help you um with, with that and and did it did they inform your family? Is that how your family um, found out, or it was your teammates that were involved in that process? Um, so my, my teammates in, informed next of kin. Um, we okay. we had an agreement that in case you know in the event of something happening, is that is that we would inform you know these people in this order um, as to right. as to what we were doing or what had happened, um, and then people would would obviously be able to support um, as and when. But I think for me it was a, a real kind of global affair because my girlfriend flew, flew from the UK. Um, I had friends friends in Dubai who were also trying to manage my repatriation. Uh, I think a friend in America as well was was aiding and, and supporting in engagement with the insurance and the assistance companies. So it, it really was for something that was on effectively home, home soil. You know, Italy was only a few hundred miles uh, flight away, but um, it really did become quite a logistical challenge to to get me back to the UK, and it, and it was it was only really a shattered leg and a, and a brain injury, which you know, which looking back now is it really isn't as complex as it could be. I've got a friend in hospital at the moment with a shattered pelvis after a, a paragliding accident, you know, and I think how lucky I was to escape with such minimal injuries for quite a big tumble, but still how much how much friends and family had to really do and manage and engage on my behalf for um so I'm, I'm yeah probably much more alive to it now than I think I've ever been yeah for sure I, I, I mean clearly with your significant injuries um at, at the start like you say um you were unconscious at the time I imagine it was it highlights the importance of having a next of kin in place and and, and having that network around you to be able to to make some serious decisions uh, like you were saying, you, you had surgery whilst you're in whilst you're in Italy. I imagine there was a lot of important decisions being made by your next next of kin, your girlfriend, or or your close family members. Yes, yeah. Well, I was in a coma, so I was in an induced coma for the first eight days from when I landed. And I got to hospital. Um, the, the the paramedics on the flight didn't believe that I'd make it to hospital with the the head injuries that I had. So. It was it was critical getting into you know, into the hospital and then straight into a coma. I think to uh, to give me the best possible chance of recovery. But I I think probably one thing that will be with me is 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 knowing from multiple friends that the the surgeons were saying that I was on a you know on the Glasgow coma scale the um the degree of responsiveness that a person can give. I was at the lowest point. I had a, a GCS score of three. Um, which is, I think, technically the lowest, okay. te- the lowest you can be before you're actually, uh, you're actually dead. So, um, not something I'm, I'm, I'm keen to highlight. But um, you know, the ab- mm. ab- ability to, to bounce back from something as, you know, as, 
as as bad as that um, was was important, but also as well, just just have just knowing that you've got someone dependable who you can call upon um, if you need to, uh, who can then manage the the flurry of communications that come in because with the the advent of social media, um, word spreads fast as soon as these things happen, and your your next of kin can very easily get overwhelmed with with messages of support or or you know, offer kind offers and all sorts so it's it really is like a multi-dimensional thing you know it requires multiple people yes yeah, so certainly i you know we, we certainly find that it's it's not only the customers that we look after it's certainly the, the network around them because it you know it obviously affects um that their loved ones around them and the decisions that you're having to make so yeah def definitely understand that so I, I assume when such a significant event occurs your mind does go over what could have um, been done differently. Uh, is there anything that stands out to you? Yeah, so it's funny you say that because I've, I've after the accident, I've, I've grown a real interest in the human factors of risk and you know safety and security. Uh, and I think I've gone through the situation many times in my mind, especially in the hotel, trying to figure out you know what what learning could be drawn out of it, so that. You know, I don't put my my family, my friends in that position again, nor my nor myself. But I think um, human factors is something which I hadn't hadn't really considered to the full extent um, previous to that. So we this was a third year running that we'd been trying to climb the Matterhorn, um, and when we when we got the weather window closed, um, you know, we were as you can imagine, pretty pretty shocked, pretty gutted about not making the summit again. Um, so I think that's, that led me to, to sleepwalk into taking more risk than I should have been doing. Um, I wasn't roped on to, to a belay partner uh, when I was taking photos. I was, I, you know, was clearly um, in a position where I, I should have been secured to something else. And I put it down to uh, an altered mindset from you know, failing to, to summit for the third year running. So it's got me thinking a lot deeper about how, how human factors can increase you know risk risk appetite without us realizing it and i think the term sleepwalking into you know, risk taking encapsulates it as as best as i can think at the moment because it wasn't it wasn't a conscious decision not to take that much risk it was something i think my my mindset was focused on the lack of summiting um, and what I could do to make sure the trip wasn't a, a complete waste. Um, so I think that's something which particularly applies to media and charities because, uh, you know, the, the focus on the mission or the task can sometimes outpace the, the protocols that are there to keep everyone safe uh, and secure. So I think there is direct correlation between the two. Yeah, okay, interesting. And... and is is there a way of then preventing you from getting into that you know sleepwalking like you say into into more risk taking it is it so it's not quite complacency that you're talking about um it's it's sort of an altered um state if you like of of um not necessarily getting the reward that you were looking for um is have i understood yeah. you correctly there yeah that's yeah it's, it's a good question i think how so I came up with this concept of uh, the guardian angel and I was working with a charity in Mosul a couple of years ago. And the, the guardian angel role was, was somebody who was outside of their project, outside of the mission, whose sole responsibility would be 
to think of the team's safety and security. So they couldn't be given any task. Uh, they couldn't be given any anything other than just simple observation, you know, for situational awareness so that the, the outside situation didn't start to impact on the team's safety. Um, and I think it's something which I'm going to, I'm going to carry on because it, the, the guardian angel role, it's, it's quite useful to kind of keep yourself from getting pulled into, you know, the, the a situation, somebody who, who has the support of the rest of the team who can speak truth to power, who can, you know, say the awkward, make, make reference to the awkward um, elephant in the room and just be the person who is free from, peer group pressure to look after the team's best interest because um certainly when we when we were you know operating in Mosul um the 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 scope creep to take on more risk than you were you were equipped to deal with was certainly ever present. You know, we, we could always you could always get look how other people were doing it, how how other organizations are doing it and get drawn into Doing this, doing it the same way, or or, or with the same uh, taking on the same mission, um, without necessarily having the same resources to to call upon if it does go wrong. Mm, okay, so it's almost that risk versus reward balance gets affected. Yeah. yeah. Um, in yeah. some of those situations, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, you know, obviously, we we talk to travellers from all sorts of backgrounds, and it's certainly not the only new to travel customers that benefit from, you know, our, our risk management stra strategies and it's, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's the importance of talking to that seasoned traveller, um, which I know is slightly different to what, what you were saying um, there, but, you know, you, you I think you can get familiar with your surroundings and like you say, it was your third um, attempt um, to, to climb the summit. Um, it, it can change dramatically. I don't imagine there's an array yeah. of, of factors that, that affect um, you whilst on a mountain, uh, you know, from emotional to stress to altitude to weather. Um, yeah, I'm sure there's a myriad. So there's the, this, the, um, the idea of a guardian angel role um, sounds perfect for, for a situation like that. Yeah, I think as well is, is as, as the pandemic hopefully relents, you know, fingers crossed that, that travel will travel will come back um, to the same degree that it was prior to the pandemic. But I think one thing that will most definitely have changed is our, our skills for travel, you know, the ability to have that connection with the outside environment and notice when things are changing without, you know, changing around you, um, you know, not necessarily for the better. So I think not necessarily going to the, the, the far-flung places again or the most remote or the most challenging straight away is, is something which we, just, we almost just need to, almost relearn how to travel again, I think, before we start taking on the kind of risk we did before the pandemic, you know, taking, being being aware that we will have experienced skill fade and that we can't just, just jump back on that, you know, the treadmill at the same speed again. We need to almost like ease ourselves into, into travel again. Yeah, it's so true, isn't it? That's that's uh, almost slow burn back into into travel with a very changing landscape, and 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 I suspect it will continue to change. Um, the the pandemic isn't something that um will will go away quickly, and yeah. and maybe never will. Um, and so it is going to continue to change for us, isn't it? So yeah, definitely. definitely. Yeah, it's very true. So Chris, pulling you back into your professional life again, is there a top tip that you would give to people travelling to high risk areas? Yeah, I, th I think having an adequate contingency plan. And when I say contingency plan, I mean a real contingency plan, not just a, if this happens, we will do this. If this happens, we will do that. 
something that has actually stood up the the, the test of, of of people you know looking into it and being critical of it because essentially a whole a whole team a whole team isn't marked by their one person's risk risk appetite it's a whole team's risk the collective risk appetite so making sure there is an adequate contingency plan for when it all goes wrong i mean i I point in case i feel i can stand there in front of people now and say i was really lucky at times that you know i had a mountain accident on my doorstep essentially and friends who i trained to look after it well but if if that had been somewhere remote or challenging you know i don't think i would be i would be talking to you on this podcast right now julie it's it's something which um you know it it can't really be paid lip service to anymore anymore as in you, you can't really just say you know we'll make it up if it if we encounter it we'll make it up it's i don't think that's good enough anymore it needs to be something which is you know is watertight is something which can stand up to you know, a pressure test or something, if it does go wrong, has to be called upon. Chris, where can people find out a little bit more about you and your work? Uh, thanks. Uh, LinkedIn or my website, uh, houseofhiatus.com, um, which has got all a, a lot of my photography, a lot of my design work, but then also uh, writing and uh, writing an audio for, for the, the risk uh, consulting that I do. Um it's a, a bit of a, a jumble of everything, but hopefully looks <laughs> looks looks good enough to, uh, to to take a peek at. Thank you, Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you today, and um, thank you for being so open and you know obviously talking through what's been a significant injury um, and a challenging journey to to recovery, and, and hearing how your contingency plan um, uh, did stand up uh, through a very, a very serious accident. So, uh, thank you very much, and I wish you all the best in your um, continued recovery, and really appreciate your time. No problems. Thanks for having me, Julie. It's much appreciated.